Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our reading today is Isaiah 5, verse 8 through 25. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one Ephraim. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tamarine and flute, and wine in their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich." Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as their cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpse were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We are continuing our study of Isaiah. We will be looking at chapters 2 through 5. And we are looking at huge sections within the book, but hopefully we'll show you the structure. We do believe the Bible teaches a single story, and at the center of the story is Jesus. We believe that the Bible has intentional structure. I will show you that in chapters 2 through 5, at least my suggestion of what that might look like. And then as we move through Isaiah, we will be showing you the overall structure of each section and how the sections work together to form a singular whole. It is absolutely imperative that we look at Isaiah in its historical context. Throughout Isaiah, especially the first 39 chapters, you have a reoccurring phrase, in that day. 
It speaks of a day that is still yet future to the nation. But that statement occurs only in the first 39 chapters. If it is used in chapters 40 through 66, it is used sparingly, maybe once or twice. But otherwise, the dominant occurrence of that phrase is found in the first 39 chapters. And why? Because what we have in the first 39 chapters are a denouncement, a judgment on the nation of Israel, on Judah, on Jerusalem. But it speaks of a future hope of a hope that exists in that day. Isaiah assures us that a day is coming when God will deal decisively with all rebellion, and in that day he will reign with absolute authority over the whole earth from his holy mountain. And we see that in the language of our text. In that day he shall wash away all the filth of sin and make his people holy in that day. We want to note what's happening within this larger text. And I'm wanting to show you the structure of the passage that we'll be considering, chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. In chapters 2 and 4, you have these dominant uh, future days. And let me read them for you because what we just heard were the six woes pronounced on the nation of Jerusalem, Judah, and then the therefores as a consequence of their sin. In chapters 2, 1 through 5, and then chapter 4, 2 through 6, you have the headings to the sections. And let me show you that in just a moment. But listen to the words of Isaiah in chapter 2. It says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and that's really the judgment that's coming in the first 12 chapters. And then it shifts to the surrounding nations in chapters 13 through 27. But listen to this graphic celebrative language. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. We see this in Revelation 21 as well. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. You have that garden-esque type language where God invites us to come and walk with him in fellowship. But you have also nations no longer warring against nations. Again, the historical context is that Assyria is coming and taking over the ten northern tribes. Syria and Israel are trying to get an alliance with Judah. We'll see that in chapters 7 and following. But all you have is a context of warfare taking place. But a day is coming when there will no longer be any war. Amen? Imagine how boring our news cycle will be. But in that day, that's not where we are, but in that day, they're in a context where nations are rising up against nations. Larger empires are consuming smaller countries. But there's coming a day when the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is a day of celebration. Now we look at chapter 4. Listen to what is written. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, and I believe you have parallel passages taking place, in that day the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. We have this teaser now of a branch. And I'll I'll trace that for you in just a moment to tease it out just a little bit. 
In that day, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. We hear echoed chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. A day is coming when all sin will be fully and finally eradicated from our presence. Amen. I long for that day. Listen. Then, verse 5, Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day. What does this remind us of? And smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. It reminds us of the Exodus when God delivered his people from their enemies. That day is still coming. That day is still coming. When you look at Isaiah, the section we are in, you have Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. In that day, that day is a faraway day. And then in verses 6 of chapter 2 through 4, 1, you have in that day, but that day is near. In shadow form, the nation is going to go into exile. But a day is coming when that judgment against the nation is going to be fuller. And that day will be the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then you have this parallel statement in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. 2, 1 through 5, 4, 2 through 6 say the same thing. They celebrate the same truth. Isaiah 2, 6 through 4, 1, and then Isaiah 5, 8 through 31, which we heard read, speaks of this woe, the six woes against the nation. This is where they are at. Their judgment is irrevocable. It is inevitable. When we get to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah asks the question, how long do I have to continue to do this? And God responds by saying, when the cities are laid waste. For 40 years, Isaiah preached to a hardened people, a people that were destined for exile. But a day is coming. A day is coming. And all of us with longing hearts look forward to that day. When you look at the structure of our passage, and I'll simply cite it initially, and then we'll talk about the whole thing in total. But when you talk about the structure or the framing of our passage, chapter 2, 1 through 5, you have that initial statement of future hope. But then you have a therefore, therefore, then you see the repeating of in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. He's not stuttering. He is stressing. And then, therefore, 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 as a consequence of what is about to happen in that day, in that day. So there is this very distinct pattern of a repeating phrase and words. The same type of thing happens then in the next section. It begins with 4, 2 through 6, and then chapter 5, 1 through 7, you have the love song, the vine dresser to the vineyard. It's a theme you find throughout Isaiah. God, as a loving vine dresser, takes care of the vineyard, but the vineyard proves to be unfaithful. Then you have your six woes. Woe, 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 woe. Terrible scenario that we have inside the book. But Isaiah's opening statements contrasts sharply with the reality of where they currently are. 
What they will be is not what they now are. And you see that as you read this section. Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 5 provides those two notable and repeating patterns which we've just considered. Both of these sections denounce the conduct of the arrogant and proud through a series of woes. Both speak of a future consequence marked by the reoccurring phrase in that day. And both conclude by noting how the arrogant will be abased and God alone will be exalted. This is a theme found throughout the book of Isaiah. Consider with me several verses, and I know it's, it's a lot, and I would encourage you to pick up the manuscript so you can take your time and perhaps absorb more of what's being stated. But 57 times the Hebrew word occurs, exalt, occurs in Isaiah. The context will always determine the meaning of what that word means. It isn't always translated the same way. There are, however, a number of times when it speaks of God alone being exalted. In that day, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. In chapter 2, verse 17, you have these two paragraphs that are in parallel, and they both conclude with this statement, and the Lord, Yahweh, alone will be exalted in that day. Right now, we have all this white noise. Right now, we have all these competing voices. We have all these people puffing themselves up. But a day is coming when Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Chapter 5, verse 16, but Yahweh of hosts will be exalted in judgment. Chapter 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted. Chapter 12, verse 4, make them remember that his name is exalted. Chapter 33, verse 5, the Lord is exalted. Chapter 33, verse 10, now I will be exalted, now I will be lifted up. Isaiah 52, 13, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Isaiah 57, verse 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. A day is coming when the Lord alone shall be exalted. We long for that day. In contrast to that, there's another statement made. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. Verse 12 in chapter 2, a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Who are these proud and arrogant people? They are the people who reject God. That is how they are being classified in our passage. Chapter 3, verse 16, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes. Chapter 5, verse 15, so the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. Chapter 13, verse 11, I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Chapter 28, verse 1, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. So when we look at our passage, we recognize that there is a contrast that is taking place. You have that of the nation, proud and arrogant in rebellion against God. And then you have Yahweh, the Lord. But a day is coming when the proud and the arrogant will be abased and humbled, and God alone shall be exalted. Let's walk through the, the four chapters and consider what they say. First of all, we begin with chapter 2. Chapter 2 emphasizes this idea of in that day. We have already considered how chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, speaks to this promise of a future hope that we have in God. 
what is interesting about chapter 2, and I want you to see this, in chapter 2, verse 2, it says that people will be flocking to the holy city to receive instruction that they might know God. Chapter 11, verse 9 says, A day is coming when the knowledge of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In chapter 5, verse 13, it says that the people of God go into exile for a lack of knowledge. But one day, the issue will not be forced. It will simply be. It will exist. One day, the entire earth will be covered with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. That, by the way, is our vision statement. Our means to that end right now, currently, is through church planting. But in that day, in chapter 2, you have these parallel statements of chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 and and 12 through 19. And then you have a summary statement in verses 20 and 22 of chapter 2. Notice chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. In that day, in this day of judgment, when God comes back and sets all things right, in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. And they will cast them to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of Yahweh, the terror of Yahweh. Now, remember, in God's providence, when we planned out our schedule, we didn't know that we would be leaving Revelation and walking into Isaiah. But the language of Isaiah is paralleling that of Revelation. The New Testament is always going to inform and explain the old. And we see that here. This day of terror is the day of his second coming. And from the splendor of his majesty, you have these two thoughts in parallel, terror of the Lord, splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? When will our idolatrous hearts be fixed when Jesus Christ returns? Now, as you read Isaiah, and this is what's absolutely uh, stunning to me, The nation has been in disobedience for 490 years, at least 490 years. God is now going to force a Sabbath rest on the land for 70 years in violation of their disobedience to the law. He's going to put them in exile. And the language of Isaiah is incredibly graphic. And it tells us what the final judgment will look like, but it's doing so in shadow form. And you would think that if you didn't believe in Yahweh going into the exile, that the exile would convince you that Yahweh is right. And you would obey Yahweh. But the exile could not fix their heart problem. Only God can fix their heart problem. The nation that went into exile, a rebellious and arrogant people, came out the same way, a rebellious and arrogant people. They needed something more. And that's what Isaiah is going to tell us. The more we know right now, because we'll play our hand early, is Jesus. And that's what the prophet, and that's whom the prophet points to. But when the terror of the Lord strikes the hearts of men, and they shall tremble before him, and they will hide their face. We see that in verses 10, 19, and 21. It's the same kind of language we see in the book of Revelation. The word terror found in those three verses, notice verse 10, they enter into the rock, they hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, and before the splendor of his majesty. We see the same statement in verse 19. From before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Verse 21, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs and before the terror of Yahweh, from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. 
The word terror or fear occurs only six times in all of Isaiah. Three of those occurrences are in chapter 2. The phrases in those three verses are in parallel. They're saying the same thing. This day referred to in Isaiah 2 is the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the New Testament tells us that this day is his second coming. In the Revelation, John repeats this theme throughout. You have in this the far and near. There is an event that's looming on their horizon. They're about to walk into exile. They're about to be crushed by a foreign power. And yet it also speaks of another event further on that they will not see or they cannot experience yet. But that is what's going to happen. You have the far and near. The shadow is the exile. The substance is the second coming. But a day is coming, and we are assured of this. When there will be no more war, there will be only peace. And that's what chapter 2 tells us. And think about the contrast created. Chapter 2, 1 through 5. In that day, the Lord alone will be exalted, and all the arrogant and proud shall be abased. In that day. In that day, you have the sword beat into a plowshare and spear into a pruning hook. All that will be taken care of in that day. Friends, there's coming a day when there will be no more capitalism, communism, socialism, or anarchy. There is coming a day when there will be no longer be a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, or Libertarian. In that day, they will no longer have to bear hearing how ex-President Trump is a threat to democracy or President Biden is but a puppet run by a select elite within a deep state. I don't care where you fall on that equation. There's coming a day when we will no longer have to hear it. Amen? What will we listen to? There is coming a day when news will no longer be spun and what is true will be fully disclosed and manifested. There is coming a day when every evil thought shall be fully and finally destroyed. There is coming a day when nation will no longer rise up against nation. Oh, my friends, rejoice with me knowing a day is coming when the Lord alone will be exalted. Then we walk into chapter 3. Chapter 3 gives us a description of the judgment that's awaiting Jerusalem and Judah. All of this will be experienced in their Babylonian captivity. When you read chapter 3, let me just begin by reading verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water. Mighty man and the soldier, the judge and prophet and diviner and elder, the captain of 50, man of rank, counselor, skillful magician and expert in charms. I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. What you have is the description of the judgment that is about to befall them. The removal of bread and water, the removal of leadership, the removal of authority, the removal of decency, all of it will be destroyed. And why? Because they defied his glorious presence. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against Yahweh, defying his glorious presence. The word defied used in that passage occurs four times in Isaiah, and it's translated, they have rebelled. They have provoked. This is what they have done to Yahweh. They've defied his glorious presence. They've flaunted their sins, verse 9, and they've exploited the poor, verse 15. Listen to this language. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor? That's where Israel is at. 
And as a consequence of their sin, God will remove from them bread and water, leadership, authority, and decency. But in that day, and it speaks of something that is impending, because they have chosen to rebel against God by disobeying his law, they are now going to go into exile. The sins of Israel must be kept in their theological context. Everything happening to them is a consequence of this broken law. But from this judgment, we now go back into a second section within this larger section of chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, in that day. And think about what's happening. He describes what is, and then he describes what will be. Here's what is a nation in rebellion against God ready to go in exile, but here's what will be. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And those two passages, 2, 1 through 5, and 4, 2 through 6, speak of the same day. It is a day when the knowledge of Yahweh shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In that day, everything they are currently encountering shall be reversed. In that day, the Lord shall wash away, shall purge away all of their filth. In that day, they will return. The language of chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, speaks of God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage. Just as God has done, God will do. This is what God will do. Everything that they have done as a nation, God will undo as Yahweh. So in the midst of all this, and again, you have these two larger sections. Both sections begin with these glorious statements, 2, 1 through 5, 4, 2 through 6. And then they have these descriptives of where the nation is currently at. And it stands in sharp contrast to what God will do in that day. And then in the midst of that, we have this love song. Listen to chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my beloved. Interjected in the midst of all this, you have this love song. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard, God being the vine dresser, on a very fertile hill. There's no reason in the world why this should not have prospered. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it did yield grapes. It yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So the prophet Isaiah gives us this love song. God has been a faithful vine dresser. Everything was at their disposal and they should have prospered. But rather than prosper, they rejected the good hand of God. And God is now therefore going to judge them and they are going to go into exile. In chapter five, verses three through the end of the chapter, verse 30, you have the six woes that we heard read earlier. Woe, woe. Verse eight, woe. Verse 11, woe. Verse 18, woe. Verse 20, woe. Verse 21, woe. Verse 22, woe. And as a consequence of these six woes, you have therefore statements. What are these six woes? Well, in verses 8 through 10, the accumulation of land. There's this ruthless accumulation and greed. They're trying to take over everything. They are disregarding those ancient laws that caused land to revert back to tribes and families. 
drunkenness and revelry, verses 11 through 17, I thought it was interesting. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. Heroes in drinking, drunkenness and revelry. And then you have, therefore, verse 13, therefore, verse 14, judgment awaits. They compound sinfulness or sin with a cart rope. Sin is sped along by the falsehood that God is either incompetent or indifferent. Verse 20, the use of language to justify evil. Listen to what it says. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It is pronounced woe. Self-conceit, verse 21. Corruption, verses 22 and 23. All of this befalls the people. It's what they are doing. Corruption that's associated with intoxication. When you read the six woes of Isaiah 5, verses 6 through 30, when you read the six woes, you think to yourself, well, this sure sounds like our own nation, doesn't it? It is easy to read the sins of this theocracy under the law and thus having contractual conditions with Yahweh, they were obligated to keep that contract. They were under that constitution. And we read that and we say, well, look, we are just like them. We might say to ourselves, we've done everything Israel has done. And thus we are going to go into judgment as a nation. Why would we not draw those parallels or applications? Well, it is easy to look at their judgment and believe this is what God will do with us as a nation. Although this might be easy, is it right? Well, there's two reasons why I don't believe we can draw the same conclusions on a national level. First, we are not a theocracy. I stressed that last week. I stress it again this week. We are not a theocracy. We are not a God-governed nation. In this story, we are not Israel. We are Assyria and Babylon. Our sins have intrinsic demerit, but we are not in this covenant relationship with God. We are not under that law. We are not under that law as a nation. Secondly, we are not under this law, both as a nation and as a church. There are aspects of the law that are universally applicable, and as a consequence of their violation, regardless of who violates them, we face the intrinsic demerit for their violation. But this does not make us a theocracy or under the law. So when we read this passage, we might say, well, we as a nation have violated everything that Israel has done, and therefore we are going to go into exile. No, the sins that we commit have intrinsic demerit, but we are not a theocracy as a nation. We are individuals who make up this nation. Now, as a consequence of the nation's violation of that contract, Isaiah gives us the two therefores in verse 24 and 25. Because they have violated their constitution, their contract, that law, God was now going to send them into exile. He's forcing the hand. God shall bring in foreign nations. Listen to verse 26. It says in verse 26, he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. So God is going to send out a signal. He's going to whistle and the surrounding nations are going to come in and take Israel away. He does that with Assyria. Assyria comes in and takes away the 10 northern tribes. He comes in with Babylon and takes away the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But those nations are doing the bidding of God. He calls them. They come and carry out his judgment 
on the nation. It is easy to say, you know, you think, well, we've committed these sins against God. We as a nation have violated the law. As a consequence, God's going to bring in foreign nations. And we think, well, what foreign nation is right now taking over America? Hmm. Have you ever bought anything and looked at who made it? It is easy to say, well, China, if we're thinking, well, we're just like them. And God's going to punish us in the same way that he punished them. And we think it's easy to say China is the foreign nation that will take over the Christian nation, America. This would excite us with our current news cycle. We think, well, this is what it says. But although easy, it would still be wrong. And why would it be wrong to make us Israel? Because we are not Israel. We are not a theocracy, and we are not under the contractual law. The exile that the nation is about to go into is irrevocable. It is inescapable. Isaiah is going to preach until every city is laid waste. No one can rescue them from their national judgment. No one but God. We end this section, verse 30, with they will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its cloud. The next thing we read is in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It is said that chapter 1 and chapters 1 through 6 give you a summary of the entire book. So the pattern we're going to see throughout Isaiah is judgment and hope. In the midst of this horrific and catastrophic picture, we read of another day, chapter 2, chapter 4. Isaiah leaves his readers breathless. This is horrible. The horror announced is absolutely overwhelming. And in this section, chapters 2 through 5, we are getting these two pictures. We see what life is like and then what life will be like. But in the present, it is tribulation. So how do we get from where we are as a nation, and I'm speaking of Israel, to where we will one day be in the future? There are promises made in chapters 2, 1 through 5, and 4, 2 through 6 that seem impossible. So how do we get there? We know that our ability to keep the law, this is the nation, is fraught with inability. They didn't keep it going into exile, and they did not keep it coming out of exile. We can't do this. We cannot bring this in. So how? How do we come into the promise of God? Isaiah 4.2, and I mentioned this in the reading of it, teases us with reference to the branch. What or whom is this branch? Isaiah 7 speaks of a virgin giving birth. Isaiah 9 speaks of a child to be born and a son given on whom the government shall rest and his name shall be called Wonderful. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Isaiah 53, 1 and 2 says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Notice also Isaiah eleven ten. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. So throughout Isaiah, we start having these word pictures of someone who will come and take us from where we are to where we will one day be. We know from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that a woman shall provide a seed that will crush the serpent's head. 
This message continues to be teased out from that point to this. Isaiah expands on this idea significantly. The people in that day, 700 BC, did not know the answer in detail, but now we fast forward 700 years. We have just left our study in Revelation. We know that Isaiah speaks of the branch of a virgin birth, a child born, a son given, a shoot, a stem, a branch, a root. We've just left our study of Revelation. Chapter 5, verse 5. Who is worthy to open this scroll? Stop your weeping. Look at the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. Jesus Christ is our means of getting from where we are to where we will one day be. If we understand the storyline of the Bible correctly... Jesus is the inauguration of these promises in his first coming and the culmination of those same promises at his second coming. In that day, it will be a day when glory outshines shadow, when joy extinguishes sorrow, when peace silences violence, when rebellion cedes to obedience, and when our faith becomes sight. In that day. How do we get from where we are to where we need to be? The answer is the gospel. We often speak as a church that you can't, only God can, and Jesus did. When you read the story of Israel in chapters 2 through 5, you read a horrific picture of a people who fail miserably. And they had the inability to save themselves. So to what or to whom were they to look? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Every one of us have had come to a point in our lives when we said we can't save ourselves. You cannot change the vertical. But God can, and Jesus did. He is the branch, the stem, the root. He is the one who will bring about all the chapter 2, 1 through 5, all the chapter 4, 2 through 6 promises. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we look at the bulk of what we have read. And for that present nation, in rebellion against you, there awaited nothing but judgment. They would go into exile. The land would rest. Even in exile, their hearts would not be changed. The only one who can change the leper spot is you. And you've done that in the person and work of Jesus. Father, we are thankful for the hope and promise that we have described so graphically in chapters 2 and 4. Father, help us to lean heavily into Jesus. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.